0: We shine light into dark corners. What we consider to be a rapid pace, maybe a snail's pace in five years. Our soldiers and our leaders are our greatest asymmetric advantage.
1: Welcome to the Convergence, the Army's Mad Scientist Podcast. I'm Matt Sanispert of the Mad Scientist team, and I'll be joined in just a moment by Luke Shabro, Deputy Director of Mad Scientist. Mad Scientist is a U.S. Army initiative that continually explores the future of warfare, challenges assumptions, and collaborates with academia, industry, and government. You can connect with us through Twitter at ArmyMadSci, or subscribe to the blog, the Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. On today's episode, we'll be talking with Colonel Scott Shaw, commander of the Asymmetric Warfare Group. He'll be discussing the future of ground warfare, including lessons learned from the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict in 2020 and the realities of combat for tomorrow's soldiers. As always, the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Defense, Department of the Army, Army Futures Command, or Training and Doctrine Command. Let's get started.
2: How's it going, Sarah? Good. How are you guys? We are living the dream. So to dive right in, you know, can you tell our audience a little bit about your career? How, how does one follow a path to become the commander for AWG? And what does the day-to-day in that position really look like?
0: Right, so, so the Asymmetric Warfare Group uh, is, a, is a standard army, uh, centrally selected list commander command. Uh, I was notified in, in 2018 when I was in the War College uh, that I was gonna command the Asymmetric Warfare Group. Uh, I got a year to uh, to prep, I went to Afghanistan and served on the staff there. I'm a conventional infantry officer. Uh, I've gotten mech and light assignments. So I started out in Korea, uh, I've served all over Forcecom. I commanded companies in Afghanistan and Iraq, I taught captains at TRADOC, which is a tremendous experience uh, in the career course at Fort Sill. I was a military advisory team chief, again, in Iraq during the surge. I had two more tours in Iraq, so that that's four, with 1st with Cav, including shutting the lights out in 2011. I've served twice at the, at the core level uh, in the G3 and uh, commanded an infantry battalion in the 3rd Infantry Division a Light Infantry Battalion. I worked in Army legislative liaison for 15 months and then served on the U.S. Forces Afghanistan staff. And then here I am, uh, commanding the Asymmetric Warfare Group on Fort Meade, Maryland. So the the Asymmetric Warfare Group, it's a direct report to to General Funk, to CG TRADOC, but we've got responsibilities to all the geographic Army Service Component Command commanders and to the Centers of Excellence and and really to CAC and the Army writ large, Uh, some Army service component commands more than others because we work along the the 2018 National Defense Strategy priorities. So we're really looking heavily in order at Russia, China, Iran, North Korea, and VEOS, but really in niche areas that others just don't look at uh, or didn't until we pulled them onto it. So we're we shine light into dark corners. Uh, we're the Army's Scout Platoon, with again with a with a direct line to General Funk and then those Army Service Component Commands. Our current focus is on operations in the information environment, on electronic warfare, and, and countering unmanned systems. So you ask what what a day-to-day is like. There's really not a day-to-day. So like I said, we, we did some analysis, and we started down the path. We were really focused on the National Defense Strategy priorities. Had been doing that for about six months. And then uh, Iran attacked our soldiers in Iraq. In January of 2020, and we went heavily uh, in to help the, the, uh, the GRF, the Global Response Force, 1st uh, Brigade 82nd, and put advisors across their formation because we know that problem set. Uh, and, and in some cases, we are reactive uh, because the enemy gets a vote. So we shifted, uh, we, we didn't shift completely away, but we shifted uh, a lot of forces in, into our SENT and CENTCOM. We look at, at the next 18 to 24 months, 18 to 36, um, in that sweet spot. I think anything further than that uh, falls to, to somebody else, because we're really trying to help brigades and divisions, not just BCTs, but brigades and divisions in near future war. Not necessarily future war, but near future war. So just, just a little bit of history about the Asymmetric Warfare Group uh, came to existence in 2006 had its roots in the uh, in the IED task force, uh, which became the joint IED defeat organization when the asymmetric threat was IEDs. We've changed a lot in the last 15 years. You know, the, the IED threat was reduced, not, uh, not at the forefront like it was in 2004, 2005. And my first experience with the IED task force was 2004 in a stairwell in the Abu Ghraib market when I was a company commander. Um, so we helped stand up the SFABs, and the Military Advisory Training Academy. We were very much with SFABs one and two uh, in Afghanistan and are still helping them out as they transition to other regions. We helped TRADOC and our army understand the dense urban environment. We helped TRADOC and our army with the subterranean environment, including assisting every brigade in FORSCOM, and especially those going to Korea on rotation. And and one of the things I'm really proud of is is that we've helped units rotating into the contact layer in Europe, both for uh, Operation Atlantic Resolve and in Ukraine as well.
2: No, absolutely, sir. Thank you for the background, and I, you know, I think that's a good segue. So, um, I personally have learned a lot from AWG, um, from following the the work done in dense urban, uh, to subterranean, to to what was occurring even uh, in the battle for Mosul, um, with with the fight against ISIS, and um, AWG, to to be quite frank, has been at the front uh, or forefront of a lot of these lessons learned, and that's given us signals. Uh, for the deep future. And so even though uh, you're focusing that 18 to 24 month timeframe, I think it's very indicative uh, for us for the the mid and long-term future. Now, we know that AWG, a lot of roles and functions are about to be incorporated into different parts of the Army. So with that, where the, where are we going to keep the learning going? Um, I think there's been an immense amount of insights and innovation gained from AWG. How do we use those gains continually going forward into the future force?
0: Right. So, so 15 years of knowledge um, is, is a lot and over the past uh, six or about, about the last six to seven months, We've worked with TRADOC and down-trace units, so Centers of Excellence, specifically and, and especially maneuver fires and cyber to pass off what we've seen. We're archiving that same knowledge at the Center for Army Lessons Learned, so CALL, at the Center of Military History, so CMH, at, inside the Joint Lessons Learned Information System, what everybody calls GILIS, uh, and DTIC. And we've passed a lot of our data to Army Futures Command and have briefed the Combined Arms Center's Fielded Force Integration Division, their FFID, which is responsible for Waypoint 2028. So as you think about our Army's near, mid and far future, you've got REARM and then Waypoint 2028 and Aimpoint 2035. We're trying to help, I mean, REARM is already working. Uh, We're trying to help the Waypoint 2028 designers designed that correctly and, and have passed a lot of information onto them. We've also done a lot of work with the Joint Staff Office that coordinates the, departments, the, the Department of the Army's and the Department of Defense's responses to unmanned aerial systems. Specifically, over the last uh, three or four months, we've written a paper for the TRADOT G2 and briefed it out in December. Uh, it's an unclassified paper, so it's in the in, in the Out G2 shop that details what we've seen and what we expect to see, again, near future in our three priority areas. Again, operations and in information environment, electronic warfare, and countering unmanned system. We briefed that same paper to uh, G2 OEC, the Operational Environment uh, Center, ForceCOM, Leadership, the, the Combined Arms Center, and the Centers of Excellence. We're working on a paper on the Azerbaijan-Armenia War that we can get down to the unclassified level so that folks can see it when they're in schools, can be in schools, libraries, at the Centers of Excellence, and and you could have it on a coffee table if you wanted to. One overlooked function is sending our own people back to the force. So our NCOs and our officers will go back to Force Com or go back to other units where they'll continue to serve as leaders in our Army, able to influence generations of soldiers, as well as pursue positions within the enterprise to use their skills.
2: Absolutely, sir. And I, I think that's a continuation of that legacy. And in that same vein, you know, you, you've gotten to see a lot of observations through your time uh, as commander for AWG. What do you think are some of the most important implications
0: from those observations for the future of war? So before we started this podcast, we were talking about baseball and everybody has their favorite baseball player. I, I love Yogi Berra and it ain't over till it's over. So the enemy gets a vote. And and we may want to move on from something, but the enemy gets a vote. Everybody wants to talk about China. And I fully will agree that they are absolutely competing with us. And we need to uh, prioritize what we're doing against China. But Russia is still very much a competitor, too. So is Iran. And so is North Korea. And so are VEOs. And and we've got to balance uh, our, our spending, balance our focus, balance our analysis balance our training against those competitors we have to be on watch all the time against all five of them we're really good at fighting from a lodgment at the bct level we're the best in the world at it we prove it two or three times a month at three world-class combat training centers but what's going to make us truly successful in the future is synchronizing then converging above the bct level at the division and core level What we need to be working on is space operations, cyber, information operations, electronic warfare, NBC, air defense, camouflage, logistics, including getting from home station to deployed locations. Those are hard and they take deliberate exercise design because they can't be put on at a home station easily. AI is gonna play a huge role in future war. Whether it's AI to speed up planning, or AI to assist commanders with decision-making by predicting outcomes based on algorithm, or AI to help a vehicle commander during a movement. AI is coming, and we need to figure out how to harness it and protect it. Commanders need to think about the information dimension all the time, not just protecting networks, but their presence in the information dimension as well, how they're looking at it and how they're affecting it. So, you know, when I was a company commander, I'd walk a patrol, have an interpreter with me, listen to the local radio station as I'm walking around wherever and hearing what's being said. That's, that's just not like casual observation, uh, sporadic observation is, is not going to work anymore. We have to be listening to it all the time. I mean, whatever medium it is, and actively participating in those mediums too, whether it's radio, TV. Internet, YouTube, whatever platform it is, we've got to be actively participating in it. AI is going to help with that for sure. Cell phones, uh, theirs and ours are on the battlefield. They are ever present. And they're going to be there throughout every phase of conflict, from competition to conflict. They're, they're there. And we need to figure out how to gain an advantage using them. They, they can't be our disadvantage. I mean, those were the, the observations that I, I've come out of after about 18 months of doing this.
2: No, oh, absolutely. And, you know, kind of following into uh, along the same lines, you know, one of the things you talked about earlier was a one of the, along those priority lines uh, was a focus on UAS as well. And I think we've seen expansion that and AWG was one of the first places um, that I saw that was this, this use of um, UAS and, and kind of pretty rudimentary um, explosive devices used by ISIS in, in Mosul. Um, but now we're kind of seeing an expansion here and we're seeing um, use across a spectrum. And so, you know, previously early conflicts like the, the Russo-Japanese War um, for the 20th century have really been indicators for what's to come. And so one of the closest things we've really seen um, when it comes to large scale combat operations is the recent Armenia and Azerbaijan conflict in Nagorno-Karabakh. And we've seen a lot of use of drones in that conflict, and we've seen a lot in Libya as well. What do you you think that pretends for conflict when we think about that near to midterm future
0: of conflict? First, what we saw was an ever-present lethal aerial system of systems. But that's just what we saw. Um, And and there's some truth to that, and I'm going to circle back to it. From analyzing videos, we saw a lot of artillery strikes, too. Artillery, cannon or rocket, is and will likely remain the the king of battle, the most lethal system on the battlefield. What's likely to happen, and we saw that in open source videos, is the unmanned aerial system conducting reconnaissance of opposition positions and providing targeting data back, accurate targeting data, locations to the guns or rocket launchers. And when we're talking about these rocket launchers, we're, we're talking big ones. We're talking 122 to 220 millimeter multiple rocket launchers that can saturate an area of rocket fire. So the question you asked was, was about UAS. Are we going to see a lot more UAS? Yes. We, we absolutely are going to see more of the same. Are they going to be more armed? That, that's to be seen. I suspect yes. Uh, I suspect that they just get bigger. What's important to take from the Azerbaijan-Armenia conflict that, that resulted essentially in Azerbaijan restoring the drawn on the line borders is a lowering of the entry fee into combined arms operations. You know, before you had to have an airplane piloted by a person and a large air force, you know, which which takes a lot of systems behind it. Mechanics, fuel, you know, a runway. But these drones, and I'm, I'm going to use the word drone for a reason, it showed that unmanned aerial systems could serve as a localized air force. And how local that, whether that local means in a 5x5 five five box, in a 25x25 25 25 box, in a 2500x2500 box, what it does is it creates a localized air force at a much cheaper price point than having a manned air force like the united states air force or the russian air force drone swarms and and everybody talks about drone swarms are one thing but drones synchronize with maneuver and fires whether that's lethal or non-lethal so again information electronic warfare uh, establishes true combined arms warfare that's what the key takeaway is in my opinion from the azerbaijan-armenian war the armenians especially were unable to deal with the drones they knew they were in the air, but they just couldn't deal with them. They knew they were in the air for one of two reasons. You hear it, or you are you're struck for no apparent reason. I- imagine knowing that a threat's there, but having to live in fear of that threat, in fear of death, because you needed more water, or because you needed to go to the bathroom. I mean, that's the kind of environment that the Armenians were dealing with. I mean, you can see it again in Vimeo or YouTube or whatever platform. In these videos, people are just sitting there in a gun position, and they're struck. People move around, and they're struck. It's going to become increasingly difficult to near impossible to stay concealed, and I mean to hide, with more and more sophisticated drones. Right now, we're talking about aerial, but at some point, we're going to have ground drones, unmanned ground systems, that you know look like uh, you know the the gun bots from Star Wars or some other sort of bot that can crawl around, roll around, roll around like a ball, something like that. What it's going to lead to eventually is a I think the tempo of combat is going to increase. On top of the fact that you can't hide, so survivability moves may just become a constant. Conflict may become hyperactive. Uh, instead of what we're at now, what we consider to be a a rapid pace, maybe a snail's pace in five years. On top of the drones, there was a tremendous, probably greater than tremendous amount of information warfare between both nations directed at each other and directed at the world. Neighbors, diasporas, multiple information targets that both nations were targeting. If you look in the, in the news of both nations, like on their both English and, and native language sites, both nations' populations thought they were winning. Videos with some grain of truth to them showing battle damage done by one side or the other were prolific on both sides and shared throughout both countries, both on, again, on cell phone or watch parties. That sort of thing is going to be background noise in future war, and and we need to figure out how to counter it because it's going to be there. Our opponent is going to think that they're in the right and that they're winning, and we've got to figure out how to deal with it. In the Azerbaijan-Armenia War, while UAS and information as a weapon system were used heavily on the battlefield, what's also clear is that once you're in the close fight, the old rules still apply. Infantry is going to have to clear complex, and I mean mountainous or urban terrain. We saw that in the, in the Nagorno-Karabakh region. You know, if you look at the, at the map, you know, Nagorno-Karabakh is exceptionally complex terrain. It's not, you know, like Nepal, but it's, it's some pretty tough terrain. South of there, mostly flat. But that Nagorno-Karabakh region has some deep valleys and high ridges, much like East Afghanistan. And you're going to have to have infantry to clear it. We, we saw it on YouTube and Vimeo. You can look at the videos. Tanks or infantry with anti-tank weapons are likely going to still have to kill tanks. Now, one more point is proxy warfare. Now, proxy warfare is going to continue. So whether it's the Wagner Group or any of a number of private military companies, the battlefield is going to have contracted, uniformed or non-uniformed, they may be servicing a UAS. They may be driving some trucks. They may be active participants, but the battlefield is going to have contracted uniform and non-uniform forces that will complicate the battlefield. You're going to see this across the globe uh, with several nations, including some of our partners, potentially. I, I, I think that a solely uniform future conflict, if you're using that as a, as a fact or an assumption then you are probably using the wrong factor assumption.
1: Sir, uh, you make a lot of good points there. And, and one thing we talk about at Mad Scientist a lot is the idea of hiders versus finders. And that's going to be a major component of future warfare. And based on what you said and what we've been seeing, it kind of seems like the finders are continually accruing advantage as the years go on. Um, like you said, everyone has a cell phone on either side. They've got persistently loitering drones that are seeing everybody. So those, there may not be a way to hide in the future. So what I want to get to now is what's the new reality for the U.S. soldier on the ground? Uh, In the Gulf War, the U.S. had a big advantage in conventional strength, technological prowess, and and training compared to Iraqi forces. But over the last uh, 20 years or so, the U.S. has often been fighting weaker insurgent and terrorist forces that use asymmetric tactics uh, to mitigate those weaknesses that they have. Now we're seeing increased use of disruptive tech and weapons on the battlefield, not only by state actors, but also non-state actors as well. So how does this impact the American ground pounder? How does this change the way they see things in fight and the way that we're going to have to train them?
0: Our soldiers and our leaders are our greatest asymmetric advantage. Uh, General Rainey did a podcast not too long ago and lined out 10 problems, gave a quiz, and it came to the end. And he said, if you answered the end of all 10 questions with the word leadership, you get an A. Plus. Our leaders are world class and our soldiers are world class. They get the best training, both at their professional military education, whether that's basic combat training in AIT or, or basic officer leader course, or at a unit and then leading up to the combat training center, or at the because we always talk about three dirt CTCs, you know, the three Fort Irwin, Fort Polk, and, and Germany at, uh, at Hohenfels, or the mission command training program for higher echelon division and corps headquarters our soldiers and our leaders again are are world class and we're going to have to train them to operate more dispersed and potentially out of constant communication they're going to have to be comfortable with that we're going to have to train them to be comfortable with that i don't think that means it's going to be like starship troopers like like the book not the movie um. So drop troopers with exosuits at, at extreme distance. But we're going to need to be able to disperse, to lower our communication signature, to be logistically lean, uh, whether that's fuel, parts, water, uh, and comfort items. We're going to, have to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. It means we're going to have to train our soldiers and train our leaders on operating with ambiguity, and we're going to have to trust them to operate on intent. We're going to have to figure out ways to have, potentially, to have touch points to ensure that small units have up-to-date information and orders so that that leader can make the right decision at the right time. To be succinct, we need to train mission command so we can practice it. One other point, we need to think about and train field craft. And I'm not talking about the same expert infantry badge skill that then Lieutenant Shaw learned in 1999 when I earned my, my badge. Not just a camo stick, uh, some camo face paint and burlap in my helmet. We need to teach our soldiers, our soldiers, not just our leaders, about operating in the electromagnetic spectrum, how they look in it and why they look that way and how to reduce their signature. We need to teach them not just OPSEC from slides, operational security, but why we don't take selfies with our cell phones and post them immediately with a geolocate tag on it. We need to educate our very smart, very well-trained soldiers and leaders on masking their movement, masking their food and water points, masking their sleeping areas, masking the fuel point, they have got to think about being under observation at all times. It only takes one or two times before people figure out where you're at uh, and and draw a pattern and then you're under fire under indirect fire or under fire from an unmanned system or under direct fire
1: yeah you make a lot of good points about some of the differences it's different aspects of warfare now as opposed to uh, what lieutenant Shaw had to go through in 1999. Um, I don't want to tell you what I was doing in 1999. But I I want to talk about information warfare now, though. We talk a lot about weapons and everything that goes boom. And and as an employee of the Armament Center, I'm kind of biased towards that because our business is quite literally everything that goes boom. But what about the information space and all these conflicts? What does the future hold for information warfare?
0: Our Army Doctrine, since we're talking about things that go boom, our Army Doctrine talks about eight forms of contact. In those eight forms of contact, only two involve projectiles, direct and indirect. And I think when folks think about contact and they're only thinking about direct and indirect, direct and indirect, direct and indirect, then they're missing the other six, clearly. The future is going to have information ever present, and it's going to be difficult to discern truth. It's going to take a lot of the commander's time. It's going to take a lot of the commander's staff's time. Commanders and staffs at all levels need to be thinking about how to generate timely and accurate decisions for their units while simultaneously thinking about how to disrupt timely and accurate, or better yet, generate untimely or inaccurate decisions for their opponent. Information can be used to prevent a course of action. We've seen in open source false reports of minefields in Ukraine that prevented Ukrainians from providing timely reinforcements to their units in contact. It it happens at our training centers as well. It's not a new thing, a fake minefield is something that's been going on for a long time. We've seen, uh, in quotation marks, commanders or in, in, in quotation marks, soldiers, uh, reporting events that were false and units taking what they thought was appropriate action based on that false information. Interfering with the commander's or the, the soldier's decision cycles is is what we're gonna see in the future. Again in the recent war between Azerbaijan and Armenia we saw massive amounts of videos seemingly picked from advantageous angles to highlight success that played across both countries. We're going to continue to see that. We're going to continue to see an attempt to control the narrative through videos. If a picture's worth a thousand words, a video from an already paid for weapons program so free Uh, is probably worth a million or 10 million defense dollars. That's what the future is going to look like.
1: So the Chief of Staff of the Army has empowered me to give you 100 soldiers of your choosing tomorrow. What kind of people would you want and would you need?
0: So I started with this question, and I I, I thought about it a lot. Uh, And I have a very succinct answer. I want 100 people of character who want to be part of something bigger than themselves. Our NCOs can train the rest of it. Our NCOs can train soldiers how to be resilient, and they can teach technical skills. Basic combat training and advanced individual training, AIT, can educate how to function in a violent, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous environment. You give me 100 people of character who want to be part of something bigger than themselves, I'll do whatever the Army needs.
1: No, I think that's a great answer. You start with the people. You start with integrity. You start with the character, and, that, and then you go from there. Let's say you're talking to future soldiers and leaders right now who are in middle school, high school, and even even lower in elementary school. What advice do you have for them? Why should they want to join the future force?
0: I would say to an audience of high school students, a lot of you are really into sports. Some because you like to do the sport. Some because you like to do something cool. Some because you like to be in a jersey. Most of you because you like to be on a team. Our nation's army is all of those. Our Army's uniform is the jersey of the greatest team on Earth. Further, you get to do some really cool stuff. Where else are you going to be able to lead other humans in the most arduous tasks and in the most arduous locations on Earth? There is nowhere else where someone is going to give an 18-year-old a rocket launcher that can kill a tank and tell them to fire at it when they think it's the right time to look at them in the face and say, hey, you got this, and then walk off. There is no place else on earth where you get to hurl through the darkness in a helicopter with a lot of other people, land and someone say, get out and then assemble and do something for our nation, to protect our nation. That's what the Army's about. Who wants to join? All right, so we're going
2: to transition to what we call
0: our rapid fire questions uh, that we ask all our guests. But
2: please take your time. The first question we like to ask is, what keeps you up at night? What
0: trend or technology keeps you up at night? Ever present observation. When I was a lieutenant, we owned the night. Uh, I was a lieutenant from 1996 to, to 2000. And if it was dark, we could do almost whatever we wanted. Uh, unless there was a you know, red lens flashlight discharge uh, or somebody had a white lens and, and then it was a bad night. Nobody had the ability to see us after the sun went down. That is no longer the case. Yeah, that is very much changed. And, it, and as we've talked already, it's going to be harder and harder to stay concealed. Uh, a friend of mine calls it masked. But when I was a lieutenant, there was, uh, I, I knew one soldier in the platoon that had a cell phone. Uh, now everyone has at least one. Some have two. Everyone has social media. Everyone wants to tell people where they're at. Uh, for, for good reasons. I mean, like, I want my wife to know that I'm safe. It, it's going to be very difficult to stay concealed, to conceal what we're trying to do in order to do it in a safe or lower than normal risk method. So ever-present observation is something that that bothers me. The internet, we're all subject to attack at all times in multiple forms. Our families at home station are a target for adversaries doing either information operations during competition. Uh, And and it's not just our, our state actors, but our computers are subject to ransomware. We think our home computers are safe, and they're not, they're targets. Uh, and and we need to understand that so keep your virus protection up to date our own movement from home station to port from fort stewart to the port of savannah from fort hood to the port of beaumont is under surveillance from commercial satellites at all times and understanding that and planning accordingly uh, is what we need to do and it's difficult so that would be technology number two along the same lines miss and disinformation proliferated by the internet is here now and it's going to stay. We need to figure out how to deal with it and not just at the high levels, but also at the platoon level. We need to have some very honest conversations about what's going on on the internet. um, And and when you're walking around talking to soldiers, people are our greatest asset. And if they're constantly worried about home, they're not going to be focused on the right now that may cost them their life or their fellow soldier's life. And that, that piece I wrote for you guys uh, last year for the, uh, the information contest, that no kidding is, I think, a realistic scenario. Uh, and, and to be honest, all the people in that story were people that were in my platoon when I was a lieutenant in Korea. So PFC Perkins was my driver. Corporal O'Quinn was my gunner. And Sergeant Kennedy rode in the back. He was my dismounted team leader.
2: No, I think those are great insights, sir, and um, something that we all have to think about more more than we probably want to. Um, so what's something about you that you're willing to share with the public uh, that most people
0: might not know? I am truly fascinated by all things Disney. Uh, parks, resorts, Disney Plus. Uh, I, I just finished watching uh, the first two episodes of WandaVision. You need to watch them. They're great. I love that Disney... You know, Disney says we're storytellers, and they have got a lot of great stories to entertain you and potentially let you decompress um, from the stress of life. Um, if you want to watch all nine Star Wars movies back-to-back, have at it. Uh, there it is on Disney+. Plus. They, they truly fascinate me. And what I always come back to is, is Walt Disney's saying, remember, it all started with a mouse.
2: I love it. And I share the Disney addiction. Uh, the Disney Walt well, Disney Corporation has gotten far too high a percentage of my annual GDP. So uh, finally, um, and, and maybe this will be Disney related, uh, we like to ask all our guests, uh, really tells us more about them. What's your favorite movie?
0: So I think movies are the greatest American invention. I think of them as the descendant of great theater, the child of Shakespeare and Greek tragedy. Uh, recently, so I'm I, my favorite movie of all time is The Princess Bride. There can be none greater. Uh, I believe that it would be inconceivable. However, uh, recently it's it's Ready Player One. I like to use fiction to expose myself and others to what may be or may happen in the future. Uh, not not a movie yet, but I I'm looking forward to seeing. Ghost Fleet Turn Into a Movie, uh, and also uh, Burn In, so August Cole and, uh, and Pete Singer's recent books. I'm a soldier, so I'm also a student of warfare, and I live here on the East Coast, so I have the, the greatest Civil War battlefields less than two hours from my house, and I would say coming in a close third, I truly enjoy Gettysburg as a vehicle to talk about leadership absolutely thank
2: you sir and uh we've we've had people tell us uh that they don't have a favorite movie which is obviously an unacceptable answer
0: so (laughs) they just don't want to tell you
2: (laughs) so thank you so much for sharing with us um i think a lot of great lessons uh to be learned about the future of warfare and and what we can expect we really appreciate you coming on and uh is there anything else you'd like to share with our audience
0: yes i think if you're not listening to podcasts then you're probably not exposing yourself to a lot of ideas that are out there. This mad scientist podcast is a great one. There are a lot of podcasts that that they've got archived and it would take you a while to get through them. But a lot of you do PT uh, on the weekends, throw a podcast on, listen to it. Uh, There are a lot of other podcasts that are out there that are great. Modern war Institute's got a great podcast series and, and there are several other of them, but, Start right here with the Mad Scientist podcast. I'm not saying that because I'm a, I'm a trade TRADOC soldier. Uh, I am. But, uh, but I think that the Mad Scientist podcast is a great place to, to expose yourself to something other than just the right now. You have to think three, five years out and think about things that you should be uh, training your soldiers on. The, the thing I close with, uh, the Asymmetric Warfare Group is a supporting command for the Army. So if there's something out there that, if there's a soldier or a leader that's listening to this that is needing something that's just stuck, our soldiers and our DA civilians and our consultants are experts at solving problems. Uh, And if you're having a problem, scott.a.shaw12.mil at mail.mil, send me an email. And uh, and I'll, I'll get it to the right spot or go on our website and I click request for support. Or if you know somebody in the group, just write them an email and uh, and they would be happy. They would love to help because they exist to do that. And I do too.
2: Absolutely. Thank you, sir. And uh, so you heard it straight from Colonel Shaw. Listen and subscribe to the Army Mad Scientist Convergence podcast right now. Give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, on Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and everywhere you find your podcasts. Sir, thank you so much for coming
0: on. Thanks, Matt. And thanks, Luke, for doing this. I really appreciate it. And thanks, too, to the Tradeout G2 staff for suggesting it, especially to to Mr. Tom Greco, the director, and, uh, and Lee Grubbs, the director of the Mad Scientist project.
1: Thanks for listening to The Convergence. I'd like to thank our guest Colonel Scott Shaw, commander of the Asymmetric Warfare Group. You can connect with Mad Scientists through Twitter at @armymadsci and don't forget to subscribe to our blog, the Mad Scientist Laboratory at madsci.blog.tradoc.army.mil.